about partnerships. And when I think partnerships, my mind goes straight to these guys, uh, Lycan. Doesn't everybody's mind go there when they think partnerships? Well, you know, you've got your Romeo and Juliet and your Tom and Jerry and your Lennon and McCartney and um, even fish and chips, you know. All of these are just mere second-rate associations compared to the perfect and enduring partnership that is found in a lichen. Now, for those of you that don't share my lichen for lichen, I will give you a basic introduction, Lichenology 101. You see, a lichen is not a single organism. It is a partnership between two different organisms from vastly different kingdoms. One is a plant, an algae, and the other is a fungus or a cyanobacteria sometimes. And there are about 20,000 different kinds of lichen in the world and all of them represent a partnership. They cover about 6% of the world's total land mass and they are able to do that because of this unique partnership. In partnership, they are able to form all sorts of structures and forms that neither of the individual partners can form on their own. And so we have what we call the folios forms. Oh, sorry. <coughs> so folios means leaf-like. We have the fruticose forms, which means branch-like. We have the squamulose forms, which are those that are scale-like. And of course, we have the crustose forms, which are these common ones that you find on your roof tiles, the crust-like ones. Together, they also produce a whole range of chemicals, which actually allow them to inhabit parts of the environment that nothing else can inhabit, which is why you find them growing on your roof tiles, and why you find them growing on metal and glass and on the Arctic tundra and places like that. It's also why they are a great candidate for cancer research, because of these unusual chemicals that they form. And so complete is their union that we have come to know them as just a single name, lichen. And most people think they're just one thing, but they're not. So how exactly does a fungus and an algae from completely different kingdoms come together and form this perfect type of union? And as it turns out, in many respects, this happens in much the same way as it happens to humans when they partner for life. So when humans partner for life, for most people, it didn't happen in my case because I didn't have anything to bring, but in most cases, there is a coming together and a period of consolidation when people partner for life. Nobody needs two couches in their lounge room. So the older couch gets turfed out and the new one takes pride of place. You don't need two toasters in your kitchen, so the better toaster remains and the older toaster gets sent for a trip to the op shop. 
And in the case of lichen partnerships, researchers for many hundreds of years have tried to figure out how these two organisms function together. And what they've discovered, and this is only in the last four years, I think this paper was produced, in the last four years they've discovered that they do it in much the same way as humans do. So when a fungus and an algae come together, you have two sets of genes for producing energy. That's inefficient. You don't need that. And so as it turns out, one of the partners forgoes their ability to produce energy, becoming completely dependent on the other one. Uh, and in most cases, that is the fungal partner that does that. And in doing so, the resulting lichen is much more efficient and it's therefore better equipped to thrive, particularly in harsh environments. Now, the reason why I've spent so long introducing you to this wonderful world of lichens is that in them I see a wonderful metaphor for our own partnership with the Holy Spirit. Because in every Christian, once they've received that gift of the Holy Spirit, they have dwelling in them two competing wills. One of them is holy and the other one is not. And that's not an efficient way to live. Either one of them will increase as a result, or the other one sometimes, or you work out a balance. And it strikes me that we've got a lot to learn from that fungal partner in the lichen relationship because the extent to which we will be equipped to thrive, particularly in harsh environments, will depend on our willingness to relinquish our own will so that the will of the Holy Spirit can dominate in our lives. That's what will dictate the success of our partnership. So with that big picture in mind, let's see what our scriptures for today have to say about the nature of this partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit. So would you turn with me to John chapter 16, verses 12 to 15? <clears throat> John chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. <clears throat> now, as we begin to consider this passage, <clears throat> it's important for us to take note of the context into which it was written. Jesus is talking here to his disciples. And so his words apply first and foremost to them. It was they who were guided into all truth by the Spirit. And we are the beneficiaries of that because we have 
the scriptures that were revealed to them um, and inspired for them to write down. But his words also apply to us in a secondary kind of sense um, because the Holy Spirit works with us in partnership to reveal the truths that are in his word to us. When did Jesus speak these words? Well, these words were spoken not long before Jesus was about to be crucified. So these are the things that Jesus felt was important to speak to his disciples in those last days before he died. And like the last words of anybody that we love, they are important words and words that we should take a lot of uh, concern and care with. And what was it about the Holy Spirit that Jesus chose to speak of on that very important last night before his death? Well, strangely, there's no mention here of speaking in tongues. He didn't talk about falling over. He didn't talk about laughing out loud or any other kind of manifestation of the Spirit. What Jesus wanted to teach them about the important work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, what he thought was most important had very little to do with manifestation and had everything to do with inner revelation. So let's explore the characteristics of this partnership with the Holy Spirit as described by Jesus. Firstly, he describes it as a partnership which is progressive. So we've talked before about the Celtic word for the Holy Spirit being on God gloss um, and that's the wild goose and the wild goose provides for them an image of one who is untamable, um, who's noisy, boisterous and who bursts into life bringing about change. That's what they saw when they went through successive revivals and that's how they described the Holy Spirit and that is of course one way that the Holy Spirit works but it is not the complete picture. Sometimes the Holy Spirit works with us progressively, slowly, walking alongside us, a bit more like this one here, which the Irish call Krag, which is the woodpecker. Woodpeckers peck between 8,000 and 12,000 times a day, and sometimes that's what the Holy Spirit is like with us, just gradually working in our lives <coughs> to transform us. And he labours with us in this way to mature us to be the people that God wants us to be. And that is what Jesus chose to emphasise on that particular night. Not the noisy, boisterous breaking in, but the gradual, progressive labouring of the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Now we can theorise about what that means and about why everything could not yet be revealed to them. Perhaps it was because things became clear to them after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was then that they had a better understanding of his suffering servant messiahship. <clears throat> Perhaps there was just something in them that he had seen and indicated that they weren't yet ready to have everything revealed to them. But Whatever the reason, 
Jesus knew that they couldn't grasp it all yet. And so it would be left to the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And in John's Gospel, what is truth? In John's Gospel, the truth is all about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so the truth is also the gospel message, the complete gospel message that would have to be progressively revealed to these disciples. They'd been with him and seen his ministry on earth, but they hadn't seen it all. Spiritual babies need milk, but at some point we need to move on to the meat, and we do that in partnership with the Holy Spirit to help us understand the scriptures. And that, I believe, is why, for many of you, you've read the Bible over and over and over again, and yet maybe on the 51st reading of a certain passage, something is revealed to you that you had never seen or noticed before. Something that you need to know right at this point in time, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you as you need it in your journey. The Bible is not a textbook. If it was, we could all just learn it and memorise it, but it has a greater depth and richness to it than any sort of textbook, and so it can only be understood in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Reminds me of a um, testimony that I read online of a pastor in the States And uh, this guy had gone to seminary, which is what they call Bible college over there, and he'd studied and he'd worked hard and he'd particularly struggled in Greek. But he'd laboured away and he'd passed that subject and uh, he'd got himself enough Greek to be able to work through a passage and unearth some of those little gems that can only be found in the original language in which the, the passage was written. And so in preparation of his messages, he used to labour away long into the night and uh, when one of those little gems was revealed to him, he would sit back and think to himself, my, isn't it wonderful to, to know a little Greek? But there was another lady in his congregation uh, and she'd finished primary school. She could read and she could write, and that was about the extent of her education. She had never been to secondary school, let alone darkened the doorsteps of a university. But she was described by him as a saint of God. She loved her Bible and she loved to pray. And frequently, he said time and time again, she would read the scriptures ahead of the message for the week before, and there'd be a knock on the office door. And in she would come. Brother, she would say, I've been reading the scriptures and I think it means this. And he said time and again, he'd go, that took me three nights to figure that out. (laughs) And yet she would get it on the first reading because, because of her relationship with the Lord, because of her love for him and her maturity in the faith, These things were revealed to her because the Holy Spirit has no regard for education or for male or female or anything like that. 
He looks to the heart and he reveals to those who are willing to listen exactly what they need to know. Second characteristic of this partnership as described by Jesus is that it is intimate. And as Pastor Bruce mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit is not a force, he's not an energy, he's not a wind or anything like that. And we know that he's not any of these things because he can do things that none of these things can do. He has a mind, we're told. He can speak. He intercedes for believers. He makes decisions. He can be lied to. You can't lie to a, a force. Well, you can try, but it doesn't matter. But if you lie to the Holy Spirit, well, he's going to be grieved. And we're told that uh, the Holy Spirit can be grieved by, by our actions. The Holy Spirit can do all of these things because he is fully God in every way. And the most amazing part is that he chooses to dwell in you and in me and that in each of us there is a very unique <coughs> partnership. I have a different relationship with each of my five children, equal but different because they are all different. They have different likes and different dislikes. They have different skills and abilities and different ways they like to learn. And I know that, and that's what relationships are like. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. It's not one size fits all. Each partnership is unique because we are each uniquely known by him. He knows what I need, and he knows what I need to know. But this is a two-way partnership. And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us, he will be inhibited by our sin. And so as part of our role in that, we need to deal with our own sin because sin will get in the way and hinder that partnership that we have with him. The third characteristic that Jesus describes, the result of this partnership, is that truth is revealed and understood. On that night before Jesus was crucified, imagine how burdened he must be for his disciples and for the church. Not only did he have that burden of what was about to happen to him, but he knew what was about to happen to them further down the track and what they would have to endure because he himself had suffered at the hands of men and he knew very well what lay ahead for that infant church. Their understanding of him, and indeed our understanding today, was very limited. His glory was, and it still is today, yet to be fully revealed. One day, all the earth will see his glory, but until then we are in a season of waiting. And until then, it is the Holy Spirit who makes known to us these things that belong to Jesus. When we look at this passage, we see that this is the second part of a, a wider passage, which itself is part of a bigger passage known as um, Jesus' farewell discourse. The first part of what we're looking at talks about how the Holy Spirit works in the world. So the Holy Spirit works in the world is described in verses 8 to 11, and it is convicting the world of sin, 
righteousness and judgment. The passage that we've focused on today talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and that is guiding us into truth, telling us about what is to come and glorifying Jesus. But these are not independent of one another because empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is our role to take that full gospel message, which includes not just that Jesus died for you and he loves you, but also of all the other things that are yet to come that have since been revealed to us, we are to take that message to the world. And when we go to the world, we find that the Holy Spirit is already there working, doing the conviction for us. It truly is a partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> revelation 1.1 begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, what is a revelation? It is an unveiling or a disclosure. This last book of the Bible describes for us the unveiling of Christ when his glory will be made fully known. On that light, before his crucifixion, burdened with the weight of everything that was to come, <clears throat> this is how Jesus chose to strengthen his church, not with a promise of miracles, but with a promise that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them the things that were yet to come and that he would help them understand. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But one day, judgment is coming. And these things are all part of the full gospel of Jesus Christ that we take in partnership with the Holy Spirit to the world. He reveals them to the church. He empowers us. And we take that message empowered by him to the world where the Holy Spirit is already active. The final characteristic that Jesus spoke about is that Christ will be glorified by this partnership. You know, when Moses came down the mountain after speaking to God and receiving the laws, his face reflected the glory of the Lord and it shone. And the Israelites were terrified because they knew that the glory of the Lord was also the judgment of the Lord. Sinful people could not look upon God and expect to live. And in order for Jesus to come to this earth, his glory had to be veiled. And it was veiled in the body of a human. When that work that he had to do was about to be completed, Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. During his time on earth, we got a glimpse of his glory through the miracles that he performed, but mainly it was through his death and resurrection that his glory was revealed. Jesus, during his time on earth, chose to set aside his glory and to do his work in the power of the Holy Spirit and through prayer. 
And when we do likewise, we will glorify Jesus here on earth. And so as we seek to partner with the Holy Spirit in this ongoing ministry that Christ has on earth, no matter how that partnership manifests itself, whether you're teaching adults or children in Sunday school, whether you're working in the kitchen or packing food hampers for volunteers, whether you're leading worship, whatever it is, a very useful question that we have to ask ourselves is who is getting the glory? If it's me and the accolades are all coming to me and it's all about me, then that partnership with the Holy Spirit has failed because we're told in this passage that Christ will be glorified through this partnership. If it's the Holy Spirit, and that's what we see in some of these more bold manifestations of the Spirit where everything is about the Holy Spirit and there's very little about Jesus, then again that partnership has failed because the Holy Spirit's role is not to glorify himself but it is to glorify Jesus. So how does this partnership come about? We know a little bit about what it looks like. How does it come about? Would you turn with me to John 17? verses 20 to 23. This is a little bit further on in the farewell discourse when Jesus is praying. John 17, 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you, have, that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now glory is a key theme in John's Gospel. It's there right at the beginning, John chapter 1. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did we see his glory? Well, in part through miracles, but mostly through his death and resurrection. Then Jesus goes on here to say, just before his death, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Not only that, he says, I have given them the glory that you, may, that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. How did that happen? If you go back a verse to verse 21, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. And who is described as the word in John's gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. So it is by the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross that we are sanctified and we share in that glory that he has with the Father. And Hebrews 2, 9 to 10 attests to that. 
He was crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death to bring many sons to glory. And what is the purpose of our receiving this glory? It's described in the next couple of verses. It is so that we might be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one, so that we as a church might be completely united and so that the world might know that the Father sent the Son and loved the people just as the Father loved the Son. How does all of this happen? It happens with I in them, just as you in me. Jesus in us, just as the Father is in the Son. And that is our partnership with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us. We become part of a divine partnership through the suffering of Christ on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. And it is beyond the comprehension of any of us that Jesus would choose to continue his ministry on earth through us, but he does. And he does it, I in them and you in me. All believers have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we have a choice. We can choose to do nothing with that gift or we can choose to give him free reign in our lives. So as far as I see it then, our primary responsibility is, as Paul said to Timothy, to fan into flames that gift of God which is within us. Now any of you who have had much experience with fire will know that it's not as easy as it sounds sometimes to fan a fire into flames. Obviously you don't put water on a fire, that's how you're going to put it out. In our lives sin is the water that puts out the fire. So that's our first responsibility is to deal with sin in our lives. But smouldering coals don't just spring to life by themselves. There's life there, but you have to put some effort in to get it to spring back. You need to pack them carefully. If it's all packed down, there's no room for the fire to get air and to get going. You have to add the right fuel. And you have to huff and puff a little bit to get things going. So my question to you is, is there room in your life for the Holy Spirit? Or is your schedule so packed down that there is no room for him to be fanned into flames in your life? What is the fuel that you're adding? Are you diligently studying the scriptures? Are you actively involved in prayer? And finally, are you willing to huff and puff a little bit to spend some time and energy nurturing this relationship that you have? with the Spirit of God in you. It is a wonderful privilege that each of us have to partner in the ongoing work of Christ in the world. All of us will do it in a different way. For some of us, it will be teaching. For others, it will be leading worship. 
For some, it will be through hospitality. For others, it will be through service and helps. There's an endless array of ways that this partnership will work out in our lives. But for each of us, the primary responsibility is to fan the flame, the gift of God which is in us. Now, you were handed a small slip of paper when you walked in this morning. So if you could retrieve those little bits of paper, we're going to use them now. And if you could turn your thoughts to them. We've spent much of this year watching this building go up around us. And we've also talked a lot about wanting to not only build a physical building, but to build the church. And this, I believe, is how you build the church. You build the church in the same way as you built the building. You build the building brick by brick, window by window. You build the church with individual hearts set on fire for God through partnership with the Holy Spirit. So if you look on your little sheet there, you'll see that the first question is very simple. It is, are you willing to commit to fanning that flame into life in your own life? It's a very simple question. And as we've watched this physical building go up around us, we have seen a lot of different trades on site. We've seen carpenters. We've seen concreters. We've seen gas plumbers. We've seen bricklayers, crane operators, which would be my least favourite job to do. We've seen builders and demolishers renderers, electricians, glaziers, and of course once the windows go in, you also need people to clean the windows. And just as putting up a building needs all sorts of people with all sorts of trades, it is a good metaphor for us as a church because none of these guys can build a building on their own. They all depend on one another to get the job done. And so that's where the second part of this little sheet comes in, the, the list that we have down there. Um, we're beginning to start planning for next year and so I would like you to begin to start planning um, your involvement next year. How will your partnership with the Holy Spirit play out in your life here among us? What role will you play? You're not being asked to do the whole building yourself, but like each of these tradesmen, just to find a, a role that you yourself can do. So there are all sorts of things on there. There's morning tea helpers, there's people on the sound and data, there's people to do the gardens people involved with children's ministries and you'll notice they've got little asterisks there because if you sign up for one of those you will need to abide by the regulations that we have around those rules about um, working with children checks and doing the right courses and those sorts of things. Um, we need musicians, we need all sorts of people, you'll see them all down there. And if there's something else that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about then that's what you can use the other box for.
So I'd like you to give that a little bit of thought this morning. And there's a, a letterbox that has been put over there, a white letterbox with this form stuck on the front of it. If you could fill that in and put it in the letterbox, that would be great. Now, I realise that many of you are already very active, not only in this church, but in other charities and those sorts of things. And if that's you and you think, look, I'm probably doing about as much as I could do, then just tick the other and put as per 2019. That's fine. But there are also many of you who are getting older and not quite as able to do the things that you might like to be doing. And so if that's you and you feel like you're maybe stuck in a job that you just can't do anymore, then could you write that on the back that you would like to be removed from whatever job that you have been doing this year? And if that is you, then I would like you to consider another job. I'd like you to consider joining this team. This is what I call the happy team. These are our scaffolders. And they are the happiest bunch of guys working on site. They come in, they do their work of scaffolding, they go out, they come back and check on it. They take their job very seriously, but they have a lot of fun doing it. And without these guys, absolutely nothing would happen on this building site at the moment. These are the guys that do all the prepar preparatory work for everybody else. So if you are one of those people who's thinking, really, I'm not physically able to do a lot of things, then I'd like you to consider joining the happy team and be the people who do the preparatory work of prayer and encouragement for the rest of us. Come down to the Wednesday morning prayer meeting if you can. If you can't, then pray at home. That's fine. Um, but there's a role for everyone in this church. And for these guys, their role is as critically important as anyone else, although they do no actual physical building. Um, they just support everybody else in doing their role. So, will you commit to fanning into flame that gift of God which is within you? Will you take care of that partnership that you have with the Holy Spirit? And if you will, will you consider this morning how that partnership might work itself out in your life here among us? Please, before you go, if you would put those little white slips in the mailbox over there, that will be a big help for the office staff in preparing for next year. We're going to stand and sing our final song. So if the musicians would like to join us.